0: Our Father, we are grateful for the promises that you make to us. A lot of promises are made by a lot of different people. And the difference is, is that when you make a promise, you keep your promise. You keep your word. We are grateful that you are the God who cannot lie. It it doesn't say in the text, it doesn't say that you do not lie, it says you cannot lie. There are some things you cannot do. You can't lie. And we are grateful for that. We're grateful for your promises that encourage us when we are uh, discouraged, when we're confused, when we're perplexed, when we're unsure about our next decision, which has to be made, But the psalmist said, you will make known to me the path of life. If we ask you, if we ask for your input, if we ask for your wisdom, you said in Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So we're grateful for that, Lord. Lord. You also said in the next verse, but don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check. Um, When we ask for direction and you give it, you don't want us chafing at what you say. You want us to be submissive. You want us to obey. You don't want us to be fighting you. But what a promise, and in James, we're told if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. If we're seeking wisdom, you'll give it to us. If we're facing a critical decision and we're unsure of what to do, do we go left, do we go right, what do we do here? You'll give it to us. You may not give it to us until Ten seconds before we need it, but you'll give it. That's the kind of God that you are. Uh, All of us in this room have spent too much time running away from your wisdom and thinking that we knew what was best and we've gone our own paths and our own ways. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And uh, we've butted up against a lot of... um, tough situations and brick walls and stone walls. And finally, um, due to the work of your Holy Spirit, we woke up and said, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. Would you come into my life and forgive me of my sin? Would you show me how to live in the right path? And you do that. We're all in process here. We're all at different points on the trail. But what we have in common is we all need wisdom. How grateful we are that you've promised to give it to us. As we study your word tonight, give us a, give us ears to hear, and give us a want to in our hearts to do what you prescribe to us. Not just to be hearers, but to do, but to be doers of your word that pleases you and honors you. We're so grateful for your good gifts and your kindness to us in a thousand ways. So we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So we're in a series called Godly and Gutsy. And we are going to be looking at different men in the scripture who um, portrayed some guts. In difficult situations, they uh, were men who were courageous. The term gutsy is one perhaps we don't use a lot, but if you look it up, to be gutsy is to be marked by courage and determination. Good word, to be marked by courage and determination. And just by way of review, if you or if you're here for the first time, we've been doing this series because um, there's been a drastic change in this country in recent years, uh, remarkable change. The playing field has completely been turned upside down. We're we're living in a time sort of like the Book of Judges, where you see the phrase "and every man did what was right in his own eyes." We're living right now in utter and moral, uh, utter and total moral anarchy and chaos. There is no reference point. There is no. There is no law. There is no truth. Uh, Everyone defines, your own truth. Everyone determines their own identity. I don't need to go on and on. You're aware of it. You watch it. So everything has changed. For 200 years in this country, uh, it was easy to be a Christian. Alan Bloom wrote a book 20 years ago, 25 years ago, called The Closing of the American Mind. Alan Bloom was a uh, secular Jewish scholar at the University of Chicago, brilliant scholar, not not a Christian. But he talked about the Christian influence in America, and I remember reading his book, and he said it used to be in America that every home had a Bible. And that, that was true. Uh, didn't, didn't mean they were Christian people. Didn't mean they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. But they had a Bible. And a lot of people had the Bible on the coffee table. You remember that. Even people that didn't go to church. Or they had it on the shelf. And it might have had some dust on it, but they had a Bible. And when push came to shove, they believed that Bible. Maybe they didn't practice it. Maybe they never read it. But they believed that Bible because their grandpa believed it. That's how it was. And so there was a Christian consensus that's all been turned upside down. So, and as a result, when uh, uh, Psalm 11.3 says, uh, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we're watching the foundations being bulldozed on a daily basis. So everything's changed. When you talk about marriage, it's not what we meant X amount of years ago just by judicial fiat, Um, gender, everything's changed. And as a result of that, um, some other things have changed, are in the midst of changing. Uh, It's been easy to be a Christian because we've had freedom of religion, we've had freedom of speech, we've had freedom. All those things are on their way out. And uh, if you think that's excessive, you're not paying attention. We don't know the timing of it, but um, it's where we are. So, uh, it hasn't taken much courage to be a Christian historically. It hasn't taken much determination, but from here on out it does. So, we're looking at men in Scripture. And by the way, most of the men in Scripture uh, didn't have freedom of speech and didn't have freedom of religion, and, I mean, some did, but not all of them. A lot of them didn't have freedom. So, and and when you look around the world, most Christians are under intense persecution. I should say many Christians. Some are being crucified. Some are uh, being beheaded. Some are being tortured. Some are imprisoned. Uh, Some have disappeared. Some have been killed. Some have been raped. We have just really, really light persecution. And, and really, it's, it's not even the word to use in light of what those other people go through. Uh, we have light pushback. But it's probably gonna ramp up a little bit. So we're gonna do this study looking at different men in scripture. Now so far, I, have, I started with Paul, and uh, I'm still gonna do Paul tonight. Um, and it's because there's so many there's so many illustrations out of Paul's life because as we said a few weeks ago, Paul was the great persecutor of the church. He became the great apostle of the church. And uh, we all start out ungodly, but when we meet Jesus Christ and we're born again and we trust in Him as our Savior, that He'll forgive us from our sins. First Corinthians 15. I delivered to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died in your place and in my place. That he was buried, that he rose on the third day. That he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 at one time. Uh, Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless life, gave his life on the cross for your sin and mine. He was buried. He rose up on the third day, over 500 saw him at one time. He's at the right hand of the Father. He lives forever to make intercession for us. One day he's coming back and he's going to fix all this nonsense. Now that's either true or it isn't. But it's true. So that's the gospel. And we believe that gospel. And we believe this is his word. Um, We're going to look at Paul tonight. And what we're going to do may surprise you a little bit. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, Just as Paul started out ungodly, but he met Christ, and then when you meet Christ, he puts you on the road. Uh, The Scripture says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. So now that you're born again, you're on a process of growing to become conformed to the image of Christ. When you're conformed to the image of Christ, You're going to become like him. You're going to become more godly. Now, we're always dealing with sin on this earth, but we're going to grow in our new faith. We're going to grow in godliness. Okay? Um, That's what happened to Paul. That's what happens to us. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the most autobiographical of all of Paul's writings. And we really get a glimpse into his life. He pulls back the curtain because he's being attacked. They have these false apostles. They have these counterfeit apostles that are messing up the church at Corinth. They have a counterfeit gospel. They're attacking Paul. And Paul is having to defend himself, actually. And uh, he he normally wouldn't do that. But they're saying that he can't be an apostle because he suffers so much. Uh, Really, kind of the first seeds of the prosperity gospel were back there. That if, uh, if, if you know the Lord, everything in your life ought to be perfect. You ought to be, you know, no health issues, all the money you need, nice vacations, nice house, nice cars, everything. But you see, that's contrary to the scriptures. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have an easy time. You remember that verse? I've got that on my refrigerator. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. In the world, you'll have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Christian life is a hard life. Because once you start following Christ, you're not going downstream, you're going upstream. The whole time you're going upstream. You're swimming against the current. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, Jesus said. But narrow is the gate that leads to life and fewer are those who find it. Uh, Jesus was very exclusive. He said he was the only way to God. That doesn't really fly today. You, you see? I mean, that's not how you win friends and influence people. That's how you start a riot. And that's what Jesus did, and that's what Paul did. Everywhere Paul went, not everywhere, but a lot of places, riots broke out. Because he said Jesus is the only way to God. Um, In Second Corinthians 11, that's where we're going. Paul is going to give us his catalog of afflictions. I'll say that again. He's going to give us his catalog of afflictions. They have attacked him and said he's not a genuine apostle. But he's going to give them a catalog of what he's been through. Normally, he wouldn't go into this. But you see, the fact that he has so many tribulations actually proves the fact that he belongs to Christ and that he is a legitimate apostle. If he didn't have any afflictions or hardship, he wouldn't be genuine. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's why you have many. It doesn't say through many, it doesn't say through few tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't say through some, it says through many. That's why you've got many. It's just the nature of the Christian life. And, there, and what the Lord does, he uses afflictions and he uses hardship to mature us. Uh, the the only way you mature, the only way you you get in shape spiritually is to have resistance. It, it's like exercise. Uh, the the only way you uh, get yourself in shape is that you have got to um, you've got to struggle. You got to choose to suffer. Some of you guys work out. You ever say to your friend, "Hey, let's go down to the gym and work out." You ever say that? Sure. I'll meet you at the gym at 11. Let's go work out. You ever say to your friend, hey, you want to go down to the gym and suffer? <laughs> but isn't that what you do at a gym? Yeah, that's what you do at a gym. You are choosing, you're choosing to suffer on this machine or on that treadmill or on this or this, but you're going down there choosing to suffer because if you don't suffer, you're not going to grow. If you don't suffer, uh, I mean, it's like, now you go down to the gym and and, and sit in the latte bar and and sip your little, you you know, and have your donut, and you're not going to get much out of that. you got to get out there, and you got to suffer a little bit. So Paul is going to give them a catalog of afflictions, and we've touched on this up until now because he had another catalog earlier But he's really got a catalog in 2 Corinthians 11. Now, I got a premise tonight. I got one premise I'm gonna try and hammer through. And here's where we're gonna go with this. A little different than what we've done the last couple times. But, we're talking about being godly and we're talking about gutsy. What is required of Christian men in this culture is the courage to provide balanced male leadership in two ways. And I'll say this again. It, it, right now, where we are, it take it and, and listen, this is what I'm going to give you, has always been true of what God wants from his Christian men. But as far as we're concerned, it really didn't take courage to do this. But now it's going to take some courage. So We wanna develop the courage to provide balanced male leadership. Number one, in your home. And number two, in your particular sphere of influence. And I'll explain that a little bit later. Um, It takes courage to provide in your own life, male leadership, because there's such pushback on male leadership in our time. Uh, it's not popular. It's, uh, it's mocked. It's ridiculed. It's scorned. But we are in the trouble that we are in. All you have to do is look at families and look at how critical men are. And one of the things that the enemy wants to do, and I said this years ago when I did a book called Point Men, the enemy has a two-fold strategy. Number one, he wants to alienate and sever the relationship that a man has with his wife. I'm talking about Christian men. So if you're married, I don't care if you're married four weeks or four months or 44 years or 400 years, the enemy, what he wants to do with you and your wife, he wants to alienate you, and then he wants to sever the relationship. He wants you to wind up in a divorce. Just know that's his goal for you and your wife. Uh, the scripture says the two shall become, the two shall become one flesh. But the enemy, what Satan wants to do, he wants to take the two who have become one and make them two again. So he's going to do everything he can do to get in between you guys and, and alienate you and get you so you don't want to be in the same room and you don't even talk to each other and da, 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 and then finally he just I'm not putting up with this. The second strategy, he wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship that you enjoy with your kids. Okay. Wants to alienate and eventually sever the relationship you enjoy with your kids. Now, when our kids are little, two, three, four, five, six, they think their daddy's on the moon. When they hit 13, 14, 15, they want their daddies to go to the moon. <laughs> and you know about that, adolescence and all that. We've all been through it. Some of us have raised kids through it. It's not an easy time, it's a tough time. But uh, it's our job as fathers and it's our job as husbands to do everything we can to keep those relationships intact in our sphere of influence. And, and, and And I said, the courage to provide male leadership, number one, in your home. But I could have put also in there, in your home and in the church, because we've got to have balanced male leadership in the church. And I think most of us have been in church where there was male leadership, but it wasn't balanced. Maybe some guy was on an ego trip, or some guy was authoritarian, or some guy was, you know. you ever been in a church and it just kind of, it just, I mean, it, 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 it just had a bad smell? Uh, you, you have. That's a reflection of leadership. When when the leadership is messed up, the people are going to be messed up. Um, by the way, in scripture, it's real clear in scripture that a man can't lead in the church until he's first proven his leadership in his home. That'd be first Timothy three and Titus one. Okay. So we're going to talk about the courage to provide balanced male leadership. And you say, some of you guys are familiar with this. List of Paul's in 2 Corinthians 11 of his afflictions, and you're going to say, Now, how are you going to get that out of 2 Corinthians 11? Well, let's give it a shot. So, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's defending himself against these false apostles, which he mentions in 11 in verse 13. Uh, he mentions in verse 4 of 11, they're preaching a different gospel. So he's taking these guys on. And he even says in 13 of 11 of Second Corinthians, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. These guys are in the church. Okay? And they're still in the church. No wonder if even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So, this is spiritual warfare in the church. Paul is having to defend himself. So, if we pick up in verse 22, let's pick it up. He's going to do some comparison. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane, as if I've lost my mind. Because he normally wouldn't talk like this. He's kind of bringing out his resume. Paul didn't do that. He didn't bang his own drum. Okay? Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. That always astonishes me every time I read it. He couldn't even count how many times He'd been beaten for the sake of Christ. Uh, often in danger of death. Not every once in a while. you ever had a death threat? Well, oh, that's a pleasant experience, isn't it? You remember it. Yeah, you remember it. Paul says, often in danger of death. And these weren't threats. These guys were serious. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. They didn't give you 40 because 40 would kill you. And here's how this would work. They would would spread you out between two poles and tie you up. They would whip you with the lash first. The first, they'd give you a third of the lashes on your front. When they got done, you're just, I mean, you know, you were filleted, and then they get behind you, and you'd bend over and you get the last two-thirds. Pretty uh, rugged stuff. Now, can you imagine that happening once? It happened to Paul five times. How do you think he slept at night? Well, you know he was on antibiotics. And he was probably taking, you know, hydrocodone or something, don't you think? Well, no. He just, had to, he just had to rough it out, tough it out. What do you think your body would be like if, if, if you had gone through that? Man, it'd be hard to walk. Uh, it, it'd, it'd be hard to get up from the kitchen table and walk over and get a cup of coffee. This guy had paid a huge price, okay. Three times I was beaten with rods. The Romans did this. Once I was stoned, big large stones, and when they stone you to death, you got multiple fractures, you got you get it. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Not once, but three times. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Now, let me stop here, because what you've got in 1 Corinthians 11, what we just read from verse 23 to verse 30, I said, Paul had a catalog of of afflictions, but he breaks that catalog of afflictions down into two parts. First of all, he breaks it down into physical afflictions, which we just read. The physical afflictions he lists in verses 23, I'm sorry, to 27. Those are the physical afflictions. But then in 28, he shifts gears, and now he talks about the emotional afflictions. You see. Now watch what he says. So apart from all that stuff, getting beat up and stoned and shipwrecked and lashed and whipped, apart from such external things, there is, watch this, the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. You can fly right by that. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin? without my intense concern." You see, he's talking about his sphere of influence. Um, Paul's sphere of influence, he was called by Christ to be an apostle. Uh, He was used to write scripture. He was used to establish churches. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, this guy pretty much was the top apostle. He was, uh, even Peter wavered and got influenced by false teachers in Galatians, and Paul had to confront him to his face. Uh, This was Paul's sphere of influence. This was Paul's sphere of responsibility. He'd been the great persecutor of the church He's on his way in Acts 9, breathing threats and murder against the Christians, and he runs into Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded by the great light. Lord, Lord, who art thou? He hears this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, uh, whom you are hunting down. You're hunting down my people. And uh, you know what? Jesus signed him up right there. That was it. There was no altar call. There was no invitation. There was just as, no just as I am. He just pretty much said, come with me. And he did. And, and so there was an incredible transformation. And if you look in Acts 9, we we've talked about this before. The Lord told this guy, Ananias, listen, go and pray for him because that blinded him. And Ananias says, well, well, uh, you you know, Lord, I'm not sure you... uh, uh, I mean, I know who this guy is. And uh, he knew all about him. But Ananias, to his credit, obeyed, and the Lord said, you go pray for him because I must show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Uh, We said a couple weeks ago that as Job is the model of suffering in the Old Testament, Paul is the model of suffering in the New Testament. Nobody in this room has suffered like... uh, But he had two kinds of sufferings. He had two kinds of afflictions. He had the physical. Now, he he had unbelievable persecution. Uh, Some Christians have some of this. Uh, We probably won't encounter that if if we do. I mean, if it comes, it comes. Uh, What we tend to deal with is what's in verses 28 and 29, which is the emotional affliction in our sphere of influence. His sphere of influence influence was the churches, was the leadership, was teaching doctrine, making sure they didn't get back into idolatry and sexual immorality. That's why he says, apart from such external things that I go through in my body, there is the daily, I love this, there's the daily pressure. If you're a leader, you've got daily pressure from your sphere of influence. And, and listen, we're just average guys in here. We don't have the, the reach, we don't have the name, we don't have the influence that someone like Paul would have. But we all have our areas, our spheres that the Lord has given to us. In fact, let me show you the spheres of influence. If you look in the previous chapter, if you look in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Paul says, But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Look at verse 15. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you. So Paul was given a sphere of influence. He was given gifts. He was given a calling. He was given responsibilities by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was in full-time ministry, but really, he really wasn't in full-time ministry because he made tents on the side. That's why he didn't sleep a lot, not only because of his physical ailments, but he was staying on up all night making tents because you know he didn't have big fundraising campaigns and all that stuff. I mean, this guy was legit. Um, but that was his calling, that was his ministry. Uh, That's not what mine is, that's not what yours is. We have a different sphere. And literally, physically, geographically, you can map out your sphere of influence. Just in your head, think about your normal geographical boundaries. I mean, you know, in a a given week, where do you normally drive? Where where do you go to church? What grocery store do you go to? Where do you live? Uh, Are you single? Are you married? See, your sphere of influence would be uh, your wife. It would be your children. It would be grandchildren if you have them. It's extended family. It's obviously your work. Because you work in order to make a living, to provide for those for whom you are responsible. The man doesn't provide for his own I think it's 1 Timothy 5, he's worse than a pagan. He's worse than an unbeliever. So you go out, you go out to work in order to provide for those that you are responsible for in your sphere of influence. It's not everybody in the world, but you got... Adam had the garden, and his job was to cultivate his garden. Your job is to cultivate your garden. My job is to cultivate my, my garden. You got that? And everybody's sphere of influence is a little bit different in here. Uh but as Paul, it, 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 see, see, Paul was a committed leader. And if you're a committed leader, not a passive leader, some guys have titles of leadership. That doesn't make you a leader. I mean, how many years ago was this? Maybe 25 years ago. We just moved to Dallas. I was at some deal, a lunch deal, a lot of guys there. And a guy handed me his card, I have never forgotten this, it was the single most impressive business card I've ever seen in my life. Had a guy's name, and then it, uh, it had his titles. He was CEO, he was COO, he was CFO, he was uh, founder, he was chairman, the card says over, you flip it over. And he, was, he was M.A., he was B.A., he was B.S., and I, I thought that fit. He was uh Ph.D., he was... I mean, I had never in my life, on, and I don't know this guy from Adam. I mean, I haven't seen him since, but I remember his card. This guy had more titles of leadership. This guy had more degrees. See, in our culture, we think titles make someone a leader. We think academic degrees make you a leader, and especially if you go to certain schools. You see, oh, well, then you're absolutely qualified. I mean, in this country, if I'm not mistaken, um, the Supreme Court of the United States, everybody on there has gone to one. No, that's not true because I'm thinking in my head. Most of them have gone, to, basically come out of three law schools. And that's it. Because, you see, if you've got the degree, if you've got the title, you get what I'm saying. Let me tell you something. A title doesn't make you a leader. The best definition of leadership I have ever heard in my entire life came from Dr. Howard Hendricks, who used to be a major part of this church, for years taught at Dallas Seminary. Nobody liked Dr. Howard Hendricks. And Dr. Hendricks said, I'll never forget it. He said, guys, you might want to write this down. Let me give you a definition of a leader. I'm ready. He said, a leader is someone who leads. (laughs) That's brilliant. When I did some work at DTS on a dissertation, I had to come up with definitions of leadership. I found over, I can't remember, Over 100 definitions of leadership and they were all good. Every one of them was good. Hit it from different nuances. That's the best one I've ever read. A leader is someone who leads. You can be a CEO, but if you're not leading, you can be the President of the United States. But if you're not leading, you're not a leader. You can be the Speaker of the House. You can be you can be anybody, but if you're not leading, you're not a leader. Uh, doesn't matter your titles, doesn't matter your academic degrees. Academic degrees all that means is you figured out the system, you know how to read books, and you know how to take tests. That's all that means. And and you you know you go along with the faculty and whatever they think, and you probably don't have the guts to withstand them. Because if you did, you wouldn't have tenure in the first place. I'm feeling better all of a sudden. (laughs) A leader is someone who leads. And listen, a leader is someone who cares. Who cares. Uh, Paul says, in his sphere of influence, which was the church, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Well, you don't do I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. So where's your daily pressure? The, the, the daily pressure on you for concern? Well, it's probably for your family. How are your kids doing? You got a kid off over here? That's daily pressure. Or how's, how's your work situation? Well, man, it's kind of tenuous. I mean, things are really kind of, I'm not sure if I'm going to, if I'm going to, I remember I see a guy over here and we had lunch a while back and we were talking and he said, yeah, I don't think I'm going to last long where I am. And he didn't. That's pressure. That's pressure. But he's walked with the Lord long enough. He knew that if that was going to come to an end, the Lord would do something else that he couldn't see, and that's what the Lord's provided, and will continue to provide. You see? But that's pressure. Why? Because uh, wife, kids, responsibilities, you care. You care. Um, if if there is no daily pressure of concern in your life for others, something's wrong in your life. Flip back with me, if you would, to Second Corinthians chapter five, verse fourteen. We looked at this passage probably last week. It's a nugget. Uh, And and in 5, Paul says in verse 6, in spite of all the stuff he's gone through, this amazing list of sufferings, in 5, 6 of of, uh, 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, always being of good courage. That's amazing. Verse 8, we are of good courage. Well, then we said, and we went to 14. How could he be of good courage? Well, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. The amazing love of Jesus Christ for me is staggering. You see, how much he loves me. And so we're always questioning because we're always sinning and falling short if he really does love us. But he really does love us. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. In fact, I'm going to read 14 and 15. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Watch this. And he died for all, Jesus, watch this, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Okay? Christ has come into our life because of his incredible love You talk about concern. You look down at 21, the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, You know why we love Christ? Because he first loved us. We didn't seek him. We didn't want him. He came after us. He came after us like a heat-seeking missile. The love of God. He loved us when there was nothing to love. When we spit in his face, when we're blaspheming his name, he loved us. And he came and he died, and he took my sin and your sin upon him. That's incredible love. When he transforms us, we become Christ-like. That's what it means to become godly. And you see, before we meet Christ, we're just living for ourselves. We're looking out for number one. But when Christ comes into our lives, what happens is, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Okay. But that's all based on the love of God. So let's flip over to Romans 8. The amazing thing about the love of God, and I dealt with some of it last week, but look uh, at verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And He's for you. Oh, but I sinned, Steve. I still look at porn now and then and I feel so bad when I do it. Have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you hate? Yeah, I hate. I mean, I don't want to do that, Steve. Okay. All right. Well, you're growing. You're in process. You haven't arrived yet. He's still for you. And he'll help you. It doesn't mean you're gonna you're gonna fix this overnight. But growth in the Christian life tends to be slow. But he, he will not abandon you, and he won't leave you. Look at 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who brings a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus, Christ Jesus, is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. He prays for you now. Earlier, it says in verse 26, the Holy Spirit prays for you. So the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus, they pray for us as we're going through life and struggling. Now, look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Oh gosh, we might get more tribulation. Okay, let it come. Because as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Deuteronomy 33, I don't think I could go through that. Well, he'll give you what you need to get through whatever he has burdened you with. Who will separate us from the love of God, uh, of Christ? Well, tribulation or distress or persecution? Oh, that's what I'm worried about. Don't worry about it. Or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, you say, but Steve, I'm still screwed up. Are you telling me you've got a screwed up life? Yeah. All right. Neither death nor life. Your screwed up life can't separate you from the love of God because Jesus is your Savior. And when he died on the cross for your sin, as you're here today, he died for your past sin, he's died for your present sin, and he's already died for the sin you haven't committed, which is astonishing. Because when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for your sin in full. And some will say, oh, don't teach that because guys will go out and live like hell. No, you won't. When you get that in your head, you can't believe that. And you want to obey him and honor him. And then when you mess up, you confess it. You want to stay close to the shepherd. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There you go. Which goes back to 2 Corinthians 6:14, or 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. So, When we look at Paul, we see a man who had the courage to provide balanced male leadership in his sphere of influence. He carried a daily weight and burden of concern for those for whom he was responsible. And we should feel that same daily pressure emotionally for what we're going through with our sphere of influence. Uh, I came across a book a year ago called, uh, interesting title, Engendered, E-N, and then the word gendered. Written by Sam Andreadas, I hope that's a correct pronunciation, a guy who pastored in New York City for a number of years. Um, in Greenwich Village, saw all kinds of stuff And he's really got an interesting take on, I mean, very biblical, very biblical. Um, I want to, in talking about the husband-wife relationship, um, because, you know, what Christianity teaches about husband-wife relationship is really kind of interesting. Um, Let me, I'm going to read a little bit to you. And how many of you guys are husbands? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many of you guys are single? Okay. Well, you may not be single next year. I mean, you never know. So you might want to listen up, too. Um, Here's what he says. He's talking about the authority that a husband has in the marriage relationship. (gasps) The what? The authority. In Ephesians Five, back. Uh, let's turn in there before I read this because you ought to see the text. Just go to your right to get to Ephesians. If you're not familiar with your Bible, Ephesians five, and then he's talking about marriage, beginning with verse 22. And man, this is not real popular in our culture. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Man, I mean, you 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 want to start a conversation. Let me ask you something. What if he had a said uh, vice presidents be subject to your executive vice president? Would you have a problem with that? Uh, no. Because you see, this same principle works in business. This same principle works everywhere in life. There is a hierarchy among equals, among people who are equal, and in the scripture, men and women are equal. That's not true in Islam. That's not true in a lot of religions. But in Christianity, both male and female have access to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're equal. We're equal before him. Now, equality doesn't mean we're the same. Our culture says if you're equal, you're the same. But we're, we're not the same. He made us different. We're very different. If you're the same height as your wife and the same weight, you have 40% more muscle mass and you're stronger. Okay. And people have always known this until of late. <laughs> well, that can't be true. There's just no way. Well, there is a way. And uh, there's this principle of among equals. You have a hierarchy. That's how life gets done. That's how life happens. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I was driving over here a couple Sundays ago to um, be a relief pitcher for Chuck, and uh, this guy pulled up behind me with two options in his car that I didn't have on mine. He had lights and a siren. I looked in the mirror, and I thought, who does he think he is? We're both equal in the eyes of God. We're both citizens of the United States. I mean, did, did I say that? No, I pulled over, because in that situation, he had authority over me because he's a police officer and I'm not. And that's Romans chapter uh, 13. He has authority over me and government's been established by God. So it's my job to pull over and to submit to his authority. You see? Uh, If you're a vice president at your office and your office may be very hip and cool and you know, egalitarian and uh, you know, know, okay, great. Smoking dope and the whole thing. It's just wonderful, okay? (laughs) but uh, you report to somebody, you got a boss, and you're equals, and if you don't do, and sometimes you have a good boss and sometimes you don't, but it's your job to do what your boss wants you to do. Or leave, you see, and sometimes you leave. But you can't, Ms. Magazine is against this principle. Flagship Magazine of the Feminist Movement, I don't even know if it's still around anymore, but I remember years ago, I went and got their magazine, I flipped the page to what's called the masthead, because in a masthead, you find out how they get the magazine out on time. And you know what I saw? I saw executive editor. I saw associate editor. I saw managing editor. I saw, you know what I saw? I saw a hierarchy of relationships among equals where one submitted to another in order to get the magazine out on time. The very thing they're against, they have to practice or there would be no magazine. Okay. So he says, why is he subject to your own husbands? is to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. That means he has authority over the wife, as Christ has authority over the church. He himself being the savior of the body. Uh, As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Uh, This is your memory verse for the week. Little joke, you guys are so afraid you didn't even laugh. (laughs) No. Some guys take that and they just run with that. But that's not, okay. We're going to explain this in a minute. Look at 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, here we go. So what happened? The love of Christ got a hold of me. Jesus died for me. And because of what Jesus did for me, you know what? No longer should I live for myself. Now, this guy's going to point out, I'm just going to quote him and I'm going to let him say it, but you're going to see how he's going to quote this. All right. He's going to use a term called firstborn authority because Adam was born first. Adam was created by God first, then the woman was taken out of him. All right, you guys still with me? Am I losing you? How's my time? Not good. (laughs) Firstborn authority, that means being a husband, means being engaged every day. Of course, in striving to be the husbands Christ wants us to be, we often fail. But there is grace there, direct from the Lord, husbands who take up the charge. We must be receiving Christ, laying down his life for us to do the same thing for her, for your wife. He laid down his life for me, I lay down my life for her. Love your wife as Christ, what? All right, he got killed for the church. Like Christ for you, you lay down your life specifically for her. Uh, I am I've got time. I, I've got a I have got ai I'm editing as I'm standing here. Um uh, in this passage, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, Paul gives an important way of carrying out this death to a husband's self. you've got to stay with me here. He pictures it as washing her. Uh, 26 says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing water with the word. Okay? The Apostle John describes how out from Christ's wounded side flowed blood and water, John 19. Blood to purchase his bride, water to purify her. Paul says that Christ cleansed the church by the washing with water through the word. So the Christian husband should be continually sacrificing, not to make his wife a Persian kitten on a pillow, but for her growth. That will make your daily routine different than the pursuit of the American dream. The washing in verse 26 is literally through word. There is no article in the Greek. That is to say, words are the way to wash. Now, this is where this guy has some insight. If you tend to not be communicative... The strong, silent type, you need to change. It doesn't have to be a lot of words, and that's really important that you hear that. It doesn't have to be a lot of words. If they are well and timely spoken, if they wash her with the truths that God has given us. But you need to talk to her. Be ready to concentrate in conversation with her, even when you don't feel like it. This is largely how this growth, sanctification happens. So when I read this, I get convicted. Because late at night, Mary is a night person, I'm not. And we're building this house, and we just finished watching the Rangers game, and what a nice ending, and I'm ready to go in and say, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray, get my jammies on with the little feet in them. I'm just ready to just tuck away for the night, and then Mary will bring something up about the house. And what happened today with these guys, and they, and, 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 and because just, she's just getting going. And she enjoyed the game, but now we gotta work this out. And, and, you know, we gotta make some decisions. And it's a challenge. And sometimes I have to say, could we? And, and she, she knows me well enough. She'll say, you know, we probably ought to talk about this. What's the day look like tomorrow? When could we talk about this? I said that'd be good. That'd be good. You said, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I've got to engage. If I can't engage then I got to let's let's arrange a time. She knows I'm going to engage with her cuz this is important stuff. I can't just punt. Okay. He goes on and says, "These things may seem tough. Experienced husbands who are honest will confess they sometimes feel like they married someone who was too much trouble." When you Why are you laughing? (laughs) When you feel like your woman is high maintenance, recognize that as God's call to you to follow Jesus. Don't forget his call to you to follow Jesus in giving life to her. This is what being in charge principally involves. This is really important. Being engaged with her issues when you have enough to worry about for yourself. And you have enough to worry about for yourself, don't you? But see, good, balanced male leadership is not just about yourself. It's about others. It means taking her student loans as your own cost to pay back. Entering into the strains with her parents is something you need to address. In short, approaching her problems as your own. True masculine strength bears other problems, others' problems, even while burdened itself. There you go, that's balanced Christian masculinity and leadership. I'll say it again, true masculine strength bears others, others' problems even while burden itself. Everybody in the world? No, you can't do that. But those in your sphere, is your daughter burdened about something? You need to talk with her. Well, if she lives in Chicago, okay? Talk with her. What's going on, sweetheart? See, this is our job. Yeah, you got, you got a full plate, I got a full plate. But we've got people. Not that we dominate, not that we lord it over, but that we care for. The idea of being a husband, the idea of being a husband is to take care. There used to be a, a major called animal husbandry. It's the breeding and care of animals. There used to be agricultural husbandry, which is the planting and care of crops. It's crop rotation. It's it's taking care of the land. It's taking care of and reaping and sowing. It's taking care and being aware. It's taking care. We call that husbandry. So many husbands today, they take off when it gets hard. So many husbands today, they take advantage. So many husbands today, they, they take over. So many husbands today, they just take. But see, our job is to take care He goes on, and you get this from Adam and Eve. We're also to be our wives' representative. Uh, In the garden, who sinned first? The answer is she did. But who did God call to first to hold into account? The man. Because the man is her representative. He was created first. She was created out of him. He has authority over her. He is responsible. In the Old Testament, if a woman took a vow, her husband could undo the vow. If a daughter made a foolish vow, the father could undo the vow. That's in the Scripture. Um, We're also our wives' representative. There are times when you need, when you need, for your wife's sake, to represent her. So we had a situation, it's fresh in my mind, where, you know, trying to build this house and Get the subs in and all that stuff. Okay, it's it's just kind of controlled chaos. Mary gets a long email from a guy, good guy, you know, involved in one section, and he sends her an email, and she had helped on some things, and he's overloaded and overwhelmed. We need this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And I came home, and Mary said, I want you to see this. And I looked at that, and I thought, I thought I was paying him to do this. And she's carrying a bunch of stuff right now, and it's just, you know, I could just see it in her face. It just overwhelmed her. And I said, you know what, Mary, I'll take care of this. She, did, she said, I didn't even want to email. Him. I said, you don't need to. I'll take care of it. I'm happy to do it. In fact, I'll call him right now. And I was tired, and I was kind of worn out. I just called the guy, and hey, how you doing? And I wasn't mad, I wasn't angry. I said, hey, I, I was just talking with Mary, and we were going over this email. And maybe you can help me here. I was just a little confused by this. And he goes, Oh, would it it be good if I just handled that? (laughs) And I said, You know, that'd really help right now. I know, I know you're overwhelmed, aren't you? He goes, Well, that's just the nature of it. And I said, Well, that would really help on our end. Sure, glad to do it. She didn't want to call that guy. She shouldn't call the guy. I'm her representative. hey guys we can't be passive step up you know I've said it before if you hear if I hear a noise at three in the morning downstairs Mary go check that out will you <laughs> no that's not my job I mean that's not her job that's my job okay okay this whole idea of what does it mean to be a balanced male can really get out of whack real quick And I'm out of time. I've been out of time for a while. But I'm going to read something to you, because it's so cotton-picking good. And it's pretty brief. It comes from Sam Storms, who's a pastor up in Oklahoma City. He recently published this on his website, Ten Things You Should Know About Male Headship. It's excellent. It's so balanced. And it's in very small print. Among the many misconceptions about male headship in Scripture, I mention these. First, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives, but to love them. The Bible never says husbands take steps to ensure that your wives submit to you. By the way, how are you doing submitting to Christ? You ought to be the model of submission. Nor does it say, Husbands, exercise headship and authority over your wives. Rather, the principle of male headship is either asserted or assumed, and men are commanded to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Uh, Headship is never portrayed in Scripture as a means for self-satisfaction or self-exaltation. Headship is always other-oriented. I can't think of a more horrendous sin than exploiting the God-given responsibility to lovingly lead by perverting it into justification for using one's wife and family to satisfy one's lust and thirst for power. Don't be a control freak in your house. You be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And I'm talking to me here. Headship is not the power of a superior over an inferior. Human nature is simply inclined to distort the submission of the wife into the superiority of the husband. That some in the name of male headship have done precisely this cannot be denied, but it certainly must be denounced. We must also remember that the abuse of headship is not sufficient justification for abandoning headship. We need a balanced headship. Rather, we must strive in God's grace to redeem it, purify it in a way that honors both Christ and one's spouse. Headship is never to be identified with the issuing of commands, nor does it mean that the husband makes every decision in the home. Unfortunately, some men have mistakenly assumed that it undermines their authority for their wives to take the initiative in certain domestic matters. This is more an expression of masculine insecurity and fear than it is godly leadership. I know of a situation right now where a husband who is in ministry is doing this exact thing with his wife, his adult children are trying to come to her aid, and he is berating them do not talk to her, you come through me. I know it's best. I've seen that in print. That is exa- He's written a book on this. And he's a fraud. Headship is more a responsibility than a right. A right is something we tend to demand or insist upon as something we are owed. Unfortunately, some men have mistakenly assumed that it under, oh, yeah, that it, oh, this is such small print, I read it twice. This can often make for an authoritarian and self-serving atmosphere in the home. When headship is viewed as a sacred trust in which the husband is called by God to lead in honor and sacrifice for his wife, the tune and the mood of the home is radically improved. Headship is the authority to serve. That's so important. He quotes John Stott. Stott said, if headship means power in any sense, it's the power to care and not to crush. It's the power to serve and not to dominate. It's the power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate it or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. Headship is an opportunity to lead. If Jesus is our example of biblical leadership, it will help to take note of how he led his disciples. Jesus led by teaching his disciples, by setting an example for them, by spending time with them. And he also led by delegating authority to his disciples. Headship is uh, scripturally circumscribed. Husbands have never been given the authority to lead their families in ways that are contrary to the Bible. So honey, I want you to watch this this video, this porn video with me. Uh Uh-uh. No. That didn't work. And I've run into this. Headship does not give men the right to be wrong. Simply because God has invested in the husband the authority to leave does not give him the freedom to lead in ways that are contrary to God's word. On a related note, if a wife is ever asked or told by a husband to do something that violates scripture, here sign this honey. Well that's not right, that's, that financial statement is right and right, sign it, okay? If she's told by her husband to do something to violate scripture, she's not only free to disobey him, she is obligated to do so. Headship does entail the responsibility to make a final decision when agreement cannot be reached. This final decision, however, may on occasion be to let his wife decide. I've been doing this for months. What do you think about those cabinet knobs? I don't... I don't think at all about it. <laughs> but you have, and you've thought about the cabinets, and you've thought about this, and you've thought about that, and you've done an incredible job, and she really has. So, you know, Mary, I like what you like. And not just building the house. You guys still with me? Let's take two more minutes. I'm almost done. Headship entails gentleness and sensitivity. See Colossians 3.18, where Paul exhorts husbands not to be embittered against their wives. The idea there is that of friction caused by impatience and thoughtless nagging. Husbands can nag. Headship means honoring one's wife. That's 1 Peter 3.7. Headship, in summary, means loving and caring for one's wife as much as Christ loves and cares. us. I just happened to see a quote this morning from Dr. Dobson that went something like this. When a woman has a man who loves Christ and loves her and has her best interest in mind, the vast majority of women have no difficulty following that kind of leadership. And neither do you, and neither do I. So let's pray. So Father, we all have our spheres of influence. We all know what it is to be under someone's authority who doesn't care. Maybe who takes our ideas or someone else's ideas and then says that those ideas belong to them. We've all had bad bosses. We don't want to be that way. We are staggered by your love for us, and we want in our leadership and our homes for the love of Christ to control us. We have great pressure on us as men. We don't walk around talking about it or whining about it, but we carry pressure. It's heavy. It's big time. <laughs> but, Lord, as we mature, we have got to ask for extra grace to deal with the pressure that's on those that we love and are responsible for. All we can do is ask you to help us. And Lord, if we failed here and our hearts have been convicted with a particular situation or individual, would you give us the courage to go ask their forgiveness as we ask for your forgiveness? And help us, Lord. Would you please help us? We're weak men when it comes to this stuff. But in that next chapter, you told Paul, my power is perfected in weakness. We ask for your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.